Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 62 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. This is the final episode of our 2021 season before taking a short break in February and launching into GCP 2022 at the start of March and we'll come on to more of that later. So if you are new to GCP or do listen regularly but have not yet subscribed then please do so. Ensuring you are subscribed or following us on your podcast app of choice is the easiest way to make sure you get every episode downloaded straight to your smartphone or tablet. It is free and you can also find us on any podcast app. Later in the episode, uh, we'll be joined by Chris DL and Roger Jones from London and Capital to provide us with our latest quarterly investments update, in particular, looking ahead at what to expect from the equities markets in 2022. And we will also hear from Jim Bulkowski, America's captive services co-leader at EY, on how he has seen captive profiles change over the past year. But joining me in the guest co-host chair in what is turning out to be a bit of an annual tradition now in our final episode of each season is Dan Toll, president of Seeker, the Captive Insurance Companies Association. Dan, welcome back onto the pod. How have you been? Uh, thank you, Richard. It's it's great to be back on the pod. I, th- I think the, the original time we did this, we were in London together. So hopefully we can uh, yep. resume that tradition at some point in time here. But no, uh, life is uh, pretty pretty good for me. Uh, I mean, this has been a crazy time for everyone in the industry. But dis- despite all this, uh, our association's doing well, and I'm doing well. And uh, what what about yourself? How, how have you been during these times? Yeah, good. Yeah, it's been an interesting time. I told you, I just I got COVID just before Christmas, which derailed a few uh, a few family plans. But I think that's uh, not uncommon <laughs> from other people I've spoken to. And uh, yeah, as you say, we we first did this back in London uh, in twenty. 20- 20, 2020 in January 2020 or, or December 2020 and uh, I'm starting to do a bit more of it in person again so we've been in the city quite a bit the last two weeks in the city again tomorrow to record something of AIG so really looking forward to uh, recording a lot more of the podcast in person and, and we'll come on to the conference in a moment but very excited to be getting out to uh, to Tucson Arizona as well to record a whole load of new GTP content in person with yourselves and, and the American market so since last time we spoke dan you managed to get the first seeker full forum hosted in 2021 that was an in-person uh, conference obviously we weren't able to make it uh, as, as as us brits at that time but but how did that go uh, I, I certainly looked on an envy kind of seeing pictures and, and reading the reports from the event uh, it was very successful uh, again we had the fall forum because our members kept telling us they wanted to get back to in-person networking and education, and we felt the time was right. Uh, but overall, it was it was very successful. We really didn't know, since we haven't done a fall forum before, what sort of attendance we'd have. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, certainly less than our annual conference, which was anticipated. But uh, those that attended said it was fantastic. They enjoyed having a smaller networking group. Uh, there was a lot more interaction as sessions, and overall, we were, we were very pleased with it. I should say, because I've gotten a lot of questions on this. We are not planning to have a 2022 fall forum, and mainly because it wasn't in anyone's budget, but we are evaluating a 2023 fall forum. And, and again, we've had a lot to think about because of the great feedback we had from the fall forum. And, but it was too bad we couldn't have uh, many of our European friends joining us, but we certainly under- understood why you couldn't make it. 
Yeah, no, it sounds good. And uh, I look forward to seeing how those plans develop potentially for a return of that event in, in 2023. But what we do know for certain is 100% happening is the Seeker International Conference this March, March 2022, as I said, in Tucson, Arizona. I'm certainly looking forward to getting out there. I'm going to spend some time in New York on the way. So I'm going to do lots and lots of uh, networking, recording captive uh, GCP content and enjoying looking forward to seeing yourself in person. How much are you looking forward to, to getting back to that international? conference and welcoming yeah as you say hopefully a, a much broader part of the captive industry to uh, to the in-person event everyone is so excited for the return of our in-person annual conference including me and things are shaping up uh, very well uh, we put out last week that the exhibit hall sold out and we added another 10 booths and we're down to three booths left so if we get the rest of those booths that will actually exceed i believe what we had in our last in-person 2019 conference so that's a great indicator of the excitement and turnout we expect yeah. We also have record uh, sponsorship, and again, I think that's that's very positive. And we not only have a lot to celebrate just coming together as an industry because we have seen phenomenal growth, uh, it also happens to be Sika's 50th anniversary, and, that, and that's going to make the conference extra special. Yeah, absolutely. The 50th anniversary. We've got quite a few uh, interesting anniversaries kicking off at the moment. I know Vermont had a big one last year. I know Guernsey are celebrating 100 years since the first captive was formed there. And as you say, uh, 50 years of Seeker. So uh, looking forward to seeing what kind of uh, stuff you've got lined up regarding that. Can you give us a, a flavor of some of the, the key sessions or, or differences in, in this year's agenda and, and what delegates can expect? Again, uh, attendees can expect that SEQ will deliver some of the best education and networking that people have, have come to expect from our conference as a domicile neutral event. You know, we can draw upon what we truly think are the best of the best from all the jurisdictions and domiciles. So we really bring together a great speaker lineup that we don't think another conference can really compete with, uh, which, which again is part of what makes us a, a different type of conference. Some of the more popular sessions we're going to have, our essay contest finalists, where we get to hear from our colleagues. College students is, is always uh, a well-attended event. Uh, we have several sessions uh, about next-gen initiatives and Amplify Women. We also have a tax session that's uh, that or two tax sessions that, again, are, are always very popular. We're also excited that uh, we have a couple new things to our agenda. One of the, one of the items is we're going to uh, discuss ESG, and I'm, I'm proud to have you uh, be one of the organizers behind that. And I know you're going to be on the panel as well. Maybe you could you could let our listeners know what to expect from that session. Yeah, I think it's really good, Dan, that you've got the ESG topic on the agenda at Seeker this year because it does seem from the outside at least that this topic in the captive context at least hasn't really been uh, addressed a great deal uh, in the US market or at US captive conferences obviously it has been hard over the past two years there have been uh, fewer events but we did quite a, f a few episodes uh, in kind of August September time last year and I'll put links to those in these episode show notes about different elements of ESG and, and how captives could be thinking about what role they might have to play regarding environmental society or, or governance issues what ESG stands for so we'll be addressing kind of what types of litigation risks might be on the horizon uh, regarding corporates uh, in relation to ESG how captives might play a role in ensuring those uh, obviously there's an investments angle to ESG and there's of course a governance angle to ESG as well so one thing that American audience should remember is that the SEC has made public that it's going to require more ESG related reporting and climate disclosures from companies in the future and that is going to bring as I mentioned litigation risks so uh, it should 
should be a good panel. Uh, looking forward to uh, hopefully yeah, starting starting a debate in the American captain market about what ESG might mean to captives in the US. No, I, I agree, Richard. I'm I'm, I'm really glad uh, we're going to have a great panel on it. The more that I dig into it personally, the more it seems like it's likely it is going to start affecting uh, quite a few U.S. captives and, and, and may trickle down to all captives. So uh, again, we're excited about that. A couple other items to share. We have actually two keynotes, and we're going to uh, share who those are in the in, in the very short amount of time frame, and we're excited about that. And then another another item that we're especially excited about and, and a good way to sort of wrap up day two is uh, we're going to have yourself doing, uh, I believe, the first GCP live at a, at a conference. So uh, let's let's hear a little bit more about what you have planned for that. Yeah, really excited about this one, Dan. We're going to do our first GCP live in person at a conference. So what a GCP live essentially is, and it's something I've wanted to do since uh, March uh, 2020, uh, but until this thing called COVID-19 scuppered it, uh, is to actually record an episode of Global Captive Podcast in front of a live audience. Uh, so uh, Seeker and yourself have been very generous to give us that, that 4 till 5 p.m. slot at the end of day two. So we're going to have about eight different guests. We've got a few confirmed already karen z from university of california will be very familiar to our listeners and some of our other friends of the podcast uh, will be on the panel and we're going to address some of the kind of uh, big topics facing the industry over the next 12 months uh, what people's predictions are for the year but also we'll have some kind of more uh, light chat maybe some captive trivia and hopefully just get a bit of a good atmosphere going and i'm hoping dan will actually uh, i'll have the text so we can actually play the, the live uh, gcp theme tune at the start and end of the show so it should be uh, something a little bit different i think for for a conference agenda. No, it's great. And we're, we're excited about it. And everyone we've shared it with so far thinks it's a, it's a great addition. So we're, we're excited to have you this year. Fantastic. Well, let's hear now then, uh, before the second half, from Jim Bulkowski, America's captive services co-leader at EY, on how he has seen captive profiles change over the past year with regards to the coverages they have been writing and what might lie ahead in the next 12 months. So, Jim, we talked uh, back in 2020, actually, I think the last time you were on the Global Captive podcast about social inflation and its impact on insurance programs. What were the lines of insurance that you've been seen most often talked about regarding going into captives in, in 2021? I'd like to first define what is social inflation and what are the impacts really quickly. So social inflation doesn't really have a, a precise definition, but it generally refers to higher insurance liability claims and settlements due to the following, but these are not all inclusive. So you know, increased volume of claim litigation. Yeah, we're still in a litigious society and social inflation has emboldened attorneys. Um, broad interpretation of insurance coverage we just think of pandemic business interruption and the definition of what is property damage. There's been over 2,000 lawsuits filed since uh, May of 2020 in the U.S., though arguably not many of them have been successful. Plaintiff-friendly legal decisions, you know, it's the big bad company versus a small family who are just trying to get by, or juror compensation being younger and having a different view of the world, or increasing values of claim settlements and jury wars, the nuclear verdicts. So speaking of the, the nuclear verdicts, here's some quick stats. So when considering verdicts of more than 1 million, the average size increased nearly 1,000% from 2010 to 2018. This is rising from 2.3 million to 22.3 million. In 2019 alone, there was a 300% increase in verdicts of 20 million or more when compared to that same time period, all adjusted for inflation, of course. 
So plain and simple, social inflation costs insurers more in claims dollars than in the past for large settlements. So they then raise their prices to cover the losses. But it's not always a result of actual losses to the insurance company, but the fear of large settlements, which affects the underwriting of risk. Insurers see the landscape, the nuclear verdicts that are out there, increased litigation volume, and fear their insurers will be the next target or targets, and then they will have to pay the price. So insurers may preemptively raise prices due to this fear, or actually due to this reality. So to answer your question, what lines of coverage have we seen being affected? Specific to captives and a response to social inflation, among other things, we've seen an increase in auto liability, really in the trucking sector, general liability overall, professional lines such as employment practices liability and directors and officers, and medical malpractice. However, medical malpractice is a bit stabilized given that there's not as many elective surgeries the past couple of years. Of course, let's add cyber liability to the mix. There's an element of social inflation here where customers in mass are affected. And look at the landscape where this is continued more frequent threats across the board to a company's cybersecurity and systems from individuals, but hacker groups with a social agenda and state actors as well. Yeah, lots of familiar lines of insurance there, obviously, which we've we've been hearing about, particularly those liability lines, the DNO, the cyber as well. We've talked a bit about on the pod in the, in the last 12 months. Do you think then that this hardening market, whether it be the social inflation or other factors driving it, has kind of opened some clients' eyes as to more ways that they can use their existing captives? Or do you think it's more just been a much more hard force to kind of force their hands to find different solutions? You know, actually, I think it's it's both. You know, increased dire to add values in their captive and being forced into an alternative solution, be it from large settlements or given that we're in a hard market. So the hard market's entering its fourth year, really started back in 2017, which is longer than the average hard market, um, which is about three years. Uh, hopefully that's starting to, to trend down a little bit uh, and we see some of the reinsurance renewals going that way. So that's a good sign. But just imagine a risk manager going to the CFO and telling them that, yet again, the price of the insurance is going up 25% and they're getting less coverage and they have great claims history and have done nothing to, to warrant an increase other than it's a market position. So as a risk manager, not an enviable position to be in. But given this background, we've seen a tremendous surge in the past few years in both expanding a current captive or creating a new captive to prudently manage risk and get ahead of these conversations. In essence, here's the bad news, CFO. However, here's a range of solutions or options to help. So if we think about the market environment where you can't get capacity, there's gaps in layered insurance, deductibles and self-insured retentions are being forced higher, all coupled with a company's desire to save money in harsh economic times. It's, it's a pretty tough environment. So with these issues, hands are definitely being forced. Commercial fronting with captive free insurance is increasing to maintain compliance with contracts. We've seen C-suite mandates to get insurance spend, quote unquote, under control, and even some insurance capacity virtually drying up for certain clients and certain risks. In terms of those new captive formations, you said that obviously clients setting up new captives and we're starting to see those numbers come out of the jurisdictions, record numbers from Vermont going back 20 years, I think. Arizona record numbers there as well, and we'll get more statistics as January and February continues. Do you think then that as captives and, and risk managers become more comfortable taking on new uh, new lines and, and more risk or playing in different layers, as you mentioned, do you think that's going to continue even when we do see if the market softens in the next year or so? Do you think kind of the role of captives has been beef up uh, for the long term? 
Yeah, I think definitely this this will continue to some point. So let me explain. If you are forced to use a captive or strategically enhance usage in a hard market, I believe your risk tolerance will naturally change. Once you get comfortable with an expanded captive, it's really hard to go back. And I think that's a great thing. You can imagine going back to that same CFO and say you want to spend more money on insurance after a few good years of captive results. You had better have a, a good sellable reason before you have that conversation. However, if you're forced to new enhanced captive usage and the new usage is above your and your CFO and the company's risk tolerance, then the conversation is different and a little bit easier. Even in these cases, the captive owner doesn't revert 100% back to its old insurance philosophy, uh, in my opinion. However, I think, of course, we'll see a reduction in captive usage during a soft market and a little bit of the reverse in hard markets. So are there other lines or, or coverage outside of those commonly talked about the last two years, such as you've mentioned already, you've mentioned cyber, DNO, some of those liability lines. Do you think there are other lines that you, you could expect to see start going or, or appearing in captive programs more in 2022? Yeah, for sure. And I think you hit the, the nail on the head with, with DNO and cyber. They're, they're all the rage uh, right now in terms of higher prices. But we've seen a shift just from using captives for traditional insurance to insuring more business type risks, such as supply chain, uh, U.S. terrorism, pandemic, which really pandemic insurance is just a apparel for a business interruption policy, which then you could include a number of different perils into an integrated risk type of policy. And we've seen that. Inventory shrinkage for retailers. Uh, that's, of course, assuming that uh, folks are actually still going out and shopping, and those bad actors are are still lifting that stuff from the shelves. Employee benefits, ERISA and non-ERISA related. And we've seen a lot in the medical, pharma, dental, and vision space with usage in a captive. And uh, a rise in a captive being used for third-party risk. In other words, how can you help your customers? Couple that with, let's make a little bit of revenue, some revenue generation. So specific to that, we've seen an increase in companies using captives as a pandemic response tool. And what I mean is, you know, a captive can back a business need to attract and retain customers through offering insurance. Like think of travel cancellation insurance in the airline or cruise industry or enhanced related uh, products attached to credit cards. And back to cyber, new products are beginning to show up in the cryptocurrency market, uh, cyber related. So crypto company storage or Cryptocurrency storage companies are starting to offer breach coverage to the customers to remediate in the event of a breach of a company's uh, hot storage. Lastly, companies often in the mid-size range are opting to become part of a risk retention group or group captives as a way to mitigate the cost of some commercial insurance, of course, given the controlled nature of these risk sharing agreements. Overall, certainly interesting times. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. So before we are joined again by Dan Toll at Seeker, I'm delighted to hand over to Chris DL, Executive Director at London and Capital, who will introduce colleague Roger Jones in our latest investments quarterly update. 
Brilliant. Thank you, Richard, and welcome again to Global Captive Podcast listeners. I'm joined today by the head of our equities, Roger Jones. We're going to focus our discussion today on the dynamics that we're seeing in global equity markets uh, this year so far in 2022, and specifically the last week. Of course, we can't ignore the macroeconomic backdrop, which of course directly informs our views. But we're not going to go through the developments of, of what we saw in last quarter in detail. For those interested, our insights can be found on our website and on our LinkedIn page, where we have uh, links to our Q1 2022 outlook called the AND Papers, as well as our latest webinar with Palmer Legina, our Chief Investment Officer. So with that said, let's turn to the equity markets. Q4 2021 saw a roller coaster of returns specifically ending with a spectacular Santa rally in the last 10 days of 2021. Like any good roller coaster, spectacular ups are always followed by hair-raising downs, and that's where we are today. What we've seen so far in 2022 is the S&P down over 9% as of today, the 25th of January. So with this hugely volatile period uh, in, the, in the review mirror, is this the start of a broader equity market capitulation like the dot-com crash or the great financial crisis? And that's the question that I'm going to start with. And uh, Roger, over to you. Yeah, no, it's a great question because I think clearly that's going to be forefront of all investors' minds at the moment. Are we going to this scenario where we are getting a, a moderate drawdown period? A uh, healthy correction, if you like, never feel uh, never feels particularly healthy at the time when we're when we're going through them, where the markets can recover from, or are we in something a lot more structurally um, uh, challenging and longer lasting? If we look at the evidence together, it looks much more like the classic mid cycle correction in markets, and we see that because ultimately, often at this stage, we've seen the recovery stage in in, in the stock market cycle, and now we're moving on to this next stage where the economy has recovered. Uh, and we're back at a reasonable run rate in terms of global growth. And ultimately, the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world are clearly looking to take rates to a more normalised level from the emergency measures that were put in place um, during the uh, pandemic. So ultimately, it looks at we are in this classic mid-cycle correction period where investors get very worried that um, the monetary tightening that will effectively come this year is going to be too much too soon and that will impinge on growth. But historically and history suggests that ultimately what happens is that the growth does come through and companies, uh, consumers and the global economy generally can deal with these sort of uh, tightening cycles and, and the growth is will come through in terms of earnings and GDP. So I think it looks very much more that healthy correction where maybe investors got a little bit exuberant in December and we've had a, a, a bit of a reality check in terms of January. But I think it still looks more like the buy the dips market. And this is unlikely to be the end of this equity market cycle so soon. So we've been talking about normalisation probably for the last 10 years, the best part of at least. And after the great financial crisis in particular, there was a narrative in the equity market that, that the markets were climbing a wall of worry, as they said. Bad news stories kept repeatedly popping up in the press and essentially knocking the market back short term, but didn't disrupt the broader upward trend. Is that then a similar dynamic that perhaps we're seeing playing out at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, in terms of that normalisation, it's definitely got to the reality of we're in a new normal. And I think although there is clearly concern 
that rates could structurally move higher. I think there's a lot of powerful factors, demographics, technology advancement and the quantum of debt that probably suggest that that, that is unlikely in a medium longer term view. So in terms of this climbing the wall of worry, I think we're at the stage where the biggest concern out there is clearly inflation. And if, if that lasts, and I think we will see a much clearer picture as we move through this year in terms of into uh, May, June, where we start lapping those year-on-year high inflation numbers. And we'll actually see the sustainability aspect of that. And hopefully by then, some of the um, bottlenecks um, that have been present since the pandemic and the supply challenges will, will be resolved. So I think it's definitely going to be, a, the market is going to be a little bit more cautious until we see this. Um, we're going to have a higher volatility period until we get a clearer line of sight. But I think the market will ultimately be able to live with a lot of these factors uh, and will come to see that the environment probably isn't as um, potentially scary as it could be. I think the, the outcome is much more likely to be in the side of going back to that lower growth environment post the financial crisis and a moderate inflation environment. Uh, and once investors get assured of that, then I think we can get that climbing the wall of worry, as you mentioned, uh, and equities can start to show two strong pillars of uh, performance. Firstly, I think we can see reasonable earnings growth coming through. And secondly, I think we'll get the de-rating that the market has seen clearly and the fear of higher rates will we'll start to subside and we'll start to get our stabilisation in terms of the multiple supply to stocks. So we, we certainly don't have a, a crystal ball, but if what we're seeing in the market today is more likely to be driven by a sort of mid-cycle adjustment of some of these sort of frothy evaluations, particularly in growth sectors, are there then opportunities for long-term investors, even in the market today, thinking specifically around uh, opportunities for captive insurers who may well have you know long-term investment horizons uh, and certainly long-term liabilities to look after. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is a good opportunity for longer-term, medium-term equity investors. And it's almost this point always where market participants complain that there's not been a correction and that there's not had an opportunity to get in and there's been no uh, ability or time to buy the dip. And then the dip suddenly arises and everybody is too frightful to do anything and says, well, maybe we will wait and see. Um, But I think if you believe that Ultimately, earnings growth is going to be solid and that global growth is not going to collapse, which I think is a a likely outcome over the next 12 months, then this will be a good entry point. And some of the corrections we've seen in names have been really from probably a state of where they overshot. And as you mentioned, the frothy valuations that some got to. And certainly, I think it was almost more November time when a lot of these tech names uh, and these high growth names uh, shot to new highs. And then a lot of them have corrected now by huge amounts, 50 60%. And we're actually now starting to probably get a reasonable washout and a reasonable opportunity set in some of these structural growth names. Because ultimately, the growth potential of these businesses has not gone away, but the valuations are a lot more attractive and, I think, palatable for investors now. So, yes, I think there is definitely... It's always easy at this point to become overly fearful and sit in one's hands, but I think ultimately... Uh, equity investors should be looking for opportunities that are thrown up by this overshoot in the downside. Brilliant. Thank you, Roger. Always good to end on a positive note. Uh, So back to you, Richard. 
Welcome back to GCP 62, where I am joined by Dan Toll, president of Seeker. So Dan, regarding the the wider captive landscape, uh, you kind of hinted it earlier, actually, but the the captive numbers from 2021 are already starting to trickle out now with several domiciles reporting another great year of new formations. And from the noises I'm hearing from other domiciles that haven't reported numbers yet, that is only going to continue. We're going to keep getting more great numbers. We're definitely going to get great numbers from here in Europe, where, where I'm closest to currently. There doesn't seem to be much sign of this this exciting activity slowing down, does it, Dan? I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon either. Uh, I think 2020, and we've gotten all the numbers from that back, was an extraordinary year for domiciles and service providers alike. Uh, And all the reports were that record growth in domiciles, but also more and more premium getting pumped into existing captives. Uh, And I believe when we finally get all the numbers back from 2021, um, it'll be an even better year than 2020. I do believe it's really the perfect storm for the captive industry with a hard market and continued volatility in the insurance markets. This is a great time for risk managers to have a captive and to better utilize them. And if you're not having a captive yet, uh, again, there's going to be a real urgency for risk managers to, to evaluate that need and likely form something here in, in the coming years. Yeah, no, I completely echo all of that, Dan. And, and just putting my other hat on uh, for a second, my Airmic hat, um, you may have seen on LinkedIn that we're promoting Airmic's first uh, captive forum. It's a one-day in-person event in, later in March uh, for the UK risk management community uh, specifically, but we're going to have some European guests as well. And the reason we're doing that is because of everything you just said there. I mean, I in my Airmic role, I'm getting emails from from Airmit members who are at companies that have never had a captive before. They might be quite new, fast-growing companies or just companies that have never quite felt like they need a captive and they're really like starting feasibility studies and wanting to find out more so we've put on kind of captive 101 type boot camp uh, sessions for those risk managers but our experienced members that have long-standing captives are also looking for for new ways to use them and, and already putting uh, more and more premium into them so uh, we, we've seen and we've had some people on, on the podcast over the last year we've had kind of crypto companies cannabis companies and i'm now starting to see production studios and some very famous kind of fast-growing production studios that we're all aware of. Very, very interesting setting up captives. So there's definitely this new generation of captive owners, which I think is just going to bring a whole new level of innovation to the captive industry. And it'd be great to start hearing more of those stories as, as they come out. Talking about momentum, Dan, you said that you don't think that it's going to slow down anytime soon. And I, I tend to agree with you on that in terms of the formation numbers. How do you think when the hard market, if the hard market does maybe soften, how do you think that the captive industry can kind of continue to harness this momentum and ensure captives do stay top? of the agenda for organizations and their risk managers. I think everyone needs to continue to tell their stories. And it's one of the reasons why conferences like ours are so important. It brings together, in many cases, the best of the best to share the most creative uses for captives and and all the valid ways that captives can be essential and very important to a risk manager's entire portfolio. And again, I think we need to continue to tell people why we formed captives in the first place, why they're valuable to our organizations. And that's going to play a big role in demystifying what captive insurance is, which is one of our challenges in the industry is is that people don't want to talk about their captives. And it's one of the reasons why I think your podcasts serve such a great role for the entire industry. The more and more people can talk about captives, the greater utilization there will be in the future for them. That is exactly one of the reasons why we launched this podcast in the in the first place, particularly as we always have those captive owner slots on our episodes to get those stories told. And there's no better way to hear about how captives are used by 
by than by those who use them every day or just started setting one up or have used one for in the Lufthansa case for example we had Lufthansa on the end of last year they've been using a captive for 99 years now so it's great to get those stories out there and, and hopefully the industry finds them valuable the, the other area Dan that I know you're, you're passionate about and seekers on a lot of great work in is, is developing that next generation of talent and, and helping professionals with their career development we've seen a, a few real quite high profile recent changes in domiciles uh, regulatory teams in the past couple of months debbie walker retiring from north carolina's captain division we wish her well uh, ruan at the cayman islands monetary authority has recently left and it was announced that uh, a good friend of the pod joe mcdonald familiar to regular listeners and and uh, obviously very close to you down at seeker as well has taken the reins at south carolina do you think we're, we're starting to see a, a bit of a generational shift in, in regulatory positions and, and uh, do you welcome this? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's been expected and planned for by most of the domiciles and in many cases, many service providers. And I think it very well may be a healthy change. And don't get me wrong, we're seeing some real losses by talented individuals that you mentioned there uh, that have been in some cases around for decades. But the domiciles largely have planned for this, and they're ready for it. And part of part of being an active and successful domicile is building a deep bench of talented regulators behind you. And I think the transitions to new directors will inject you know new enthusiasm and, and perspectives into the role, which is which is a positive thing. And again, I think you know. You mentioned that you know our next gen initiative, you know this sort of thing was the impetus for it. We we know that we're going to see turnover and a lot of talent at the top. And the more things we can do to encourage young professionals to get into the space, and then once they're here, we want to nurture them and develop them and help give them skills to better network and to get opportunities to speak at conferences and and. Uh, receive awards and again be in position to to help them professionally grow is is really what our initiative is all about i know you mentioned joe mcdonald who is a, is certainly a member of our next gen committee and he's a great example of that he's certainly developed along and now he's going to have a great opportunity to lead the south carolina department which again is a success story and I, i'd like to think that what we've done at sika has helped better prepare them for that. And uh, and I think we're going to see that with other people in other roles. And again, I encourage people to get involved with, with our initiative. Uh, it was great to hear on your last podcast that uh, Zurich has quite a few initiatives with their, you know, trying to develop their next generation. And, you know, as we chatted about before, we, we all play a role in this. And it's great to see more and more, whether it's associations or companies or what have you, really investing in the future because we all need to play a role of getting people into this industry and then developing and keeping them so that they can truly be our next generation of captive professionals. Yeah, here, here, Dan. Agree with everything you said there. And uh, as you mentioned there, we had we had Zurich on the podcast just last week in our last episode of GCP Shorts. And particularly great to hear from uh, Ildar and Ayanara from the uh, captive uh, fronting services and captive fronting managers team who are both uh, yeah, re- relatively young in, in our industry, uh, making their way and, and telling their story about how their career has developed and, and how captive insurance, they think, has given them a real good grounding for the rest of their career in, in commercial insurance going forward. So, Dan, I guess lastly, we always like to look ahead when we record this interview at kind of the end of a series. What are some of the challenges or or areas of development seeker and and captive owners do you think should be monitoring or keeping a close eye on as we proceed through 2022? Again, we've sort of addressed this in some of the other discussions. We're a misunderstood industry and we all take a role in educating and informing the broad market about 
What is the primary reason for forming a captive? What are all the valid purposes and what have you? And I think we need to continue to do that at, at a high level. Uh, I think other real risks that, uh, or I'd say right now, I still think the greatest risk is what individual states are doing and potentially taxes they may be applying to captives that do business in their state, much like we have seen in Washington state. I think that's a real risk. Uh, certainly states are desperate for, for tax revenue. So that's something we're watching very closely. I should say the vast majority of our members and, and the captives we're aware of are formed for valid purposes. But if you happen to be a small captive <laughs> form and have formed as an 831B uh, for obvious tax purposes, I think you, you should be nervous because the IRS is putting a lot of resources out there and I think are very serious about cracking down on that. Again, if you form for valid business purposes, you have nothing to worry about. But that's something I think we're going to see more of in, in the coming year. Another thing that I think is a, is a positive, uh, even though finding qualified people is, is a challenge, I think we're going to see a lot of, since we've had so much growth in the captive industry, I think we're going to see a lot of positive wage pressures, uh, especially with young professionals getting into the space. Because there's no way that all of these service providers and companies can sustain this growth without bringing new people in. And guess what? It's easy to get jobs if you're an insurance or financial professional right now. So I think there's going to be a lot of positive wage pressures in, in the space, which is going to make it more attractive for people to, to come into the industry and stay in it. And, and that's a positive thing. We also talked about ESG. I do think that's something we're going to watch uh, more closely because I do think that that is going to trickle potentially into more captives. So there's a lot of things that we're watching. Um, it's part of the reason sometimes you, you join an association to have someone that's out there trying to keep track of all these things for you. Uh, we always want to hear from our members that sometimes bring new issues to light, but uh, we can never rest on our laurels in the captive space. Uh, again, we're, we're very fortunate to have some unbelievable years here, and I think that's going to continue for some time. But the more and more premium that flows into our space, the more we're in the spotlight. And uh, we need to make sure that we maximize the positive parts of that and, and don't get caught up and have our head down and miss out on some of the potential threats that are there. Your point there about the the wage pressure is a good one and, and one that I hadn't really thought of before, particularly particularly useful for people in this kind of inflationary environment that I think most uh, Western economies are, are currently experiencing. People are going to be demanding higher wages, so it's good that the captive industry is in uh, rude health uh, and and developing so much new business to hopefully be able to, be able to fund that and fund those recruitment drives. I know a lot of captive management divisions have been ramping up their recruitment over the past couple of years in response to to this demand. So long may that continue and. As I mentioned, uh, this is the last episode of the 2021 GTP series. We're going to have a short break in February, and then we'll be launching back up again in March. We may well make the GTP Live at Seeker our first episode of the series. I think that's probably going to be the case, uh, but but watch this space. And so looking forward to launching uh, the series there. And that is all we have time for in GCP 62 and GCP 2021 in total. Thank you to our guests, Chris DL and Roger Jones of London and Capital, Jim Bulkowski of EY and Dan Toll, President of Seeker. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Thank you so much, Richard. I always enjoy my time on the pod. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.